What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Author Brett Easton Ellis needs very little introduction. If you've read American Psycho or seen the movie, you know exactly who he is. He's also the author of Less Than Zero, which is the book that catapulted him to the limelight in 1985. If you've read American Psycho, you might think it's a strange idea to invite yourself to the man who wrote its apartment. But that is what I did when I was in Los Angeles. And I'm so glad I did because we had such a brilliant time talking about his new nonfiction book called White. It's his first nonfiction book and it explores what free speech really means. It's very controversial in that way that Brett Easton Ellis usually is. We dive into a lot of varied topics and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Now, we're here to talk about your most recent book, White, and it's a collection of nonfiction essays, which would you say is a departure for you? Um, Oh, yes, very (laughs) much a departure. And I would hesitate to use the word essay to a degree because when I was first asked to put this book together, um, my agent wanted me to do a collection, a collection of essays. And I looked over the essays from, God, going back to 1985 or 86 when I first started publishing nonfiction in places like Rolling Stone um, that I couldn't stand them. I did not want them published in a collection. Much of the nonfiction I wrote, uh, I didn't want to be put into a collection. Uh, It drove me crazy. And I would reread the pieces that I'd published in various places, weird places, like a a couple pieces in French Vanity Fair, uh, Rolling Stone, uh, a couple of essays in the New York Times, and I just did not want them to stand as... um, standalone essays. Uh, I never saw myself as an essayist and certainly not compared to the greats of the genre like Joan Didion, for example. So um, I told her this. I said, I don't want to, I don't have a collection of essays. And then she said, well, you do this thing on your podcast where you, you have like a monologue that you start each podcast off with. Some of those seem like written essays. And I said, well, they're, they're written to be spoken. They're written in a kind of ha- a fast, slangy way so that when I'm reading them uh, in a podcast uh, studio, I can, um, you know, uh, they're almost like uh, lines in a script or something. They're not necessarily what I would have written if I was writing an essay. Uh, they're much, much more conversational. And I really don't care about grammar or syntax or anything like that. Uh, it's just a way to communicate my ideas during any given week. And um, But I was talking to a friend about this because this had been going on for years. I'd been asked by my agent for years to put this thing together. And I was talking to a friend one night, uh, apropos of nothing, and uh, middle of dinner, and I said, my agent really wants me to put together this collection, and I don't see it. And my friend said, well, I listen to your podcast, and I do think there are some uh, things that are thematically tying together some of your, your monologues. And so we went through them together, my friend and I, and he uh, suggested that there is not necessarily a collection of essays here, but maybe one big essay uh, incorporating all of your themes and you starting at one place early on and then you end up at another place at the end of the book. And so it's not like eight essays. It's kind of eight essays that are all uh, part of a whole. And when I began to realize that that was what the book could be, then I began to rewrite these monologues and then put them into a kind of order that made sense to me. And that's ultimately what happened. I would say 90% of this is, is stuff that is from my podcast. 
And so this part that you're going to read to introduce us to the book, would you say, did you create this afterwards? Because it does feel like it captures the the questions of the book and the frustrations you've had about living in this time. It was. It was written while I was putting the book together. Uh, the book... Um, took a bit longer than I thought because there was a lot of rewriting and there was a lot of hand-wringing about what to include and what not to include. And my editor uh, really uh, pushed for concision and uh, thought some of my, um, some of the pieces that I wanted to include just really got off point. And so I lost stuff that I liked. Um, but I think in the end he was right. I wanted this to read, I actually wanted this to uh, be read very quickly, uh, almost in one sitting. I didn't want it to be too heavy and I didn't want it to be weighted down with a kind of, um, I don't know, heavy handedness or even really a kind of over seriousness. Uh, I wanted it to be basically uh, kind of fun, even though a lot of what's in it is not fun, but I wanted it to be easy to read. And so, yes, this opening uh, I wrote while I was putting the book together in, um, I guess, 2017. Well, let's go. It'll give everyone a sense of what they're in for. Somewhere in the last few years, and I can't pinpoint exactly when, a vague yet almost overwhelming and irrational annoyance started tearing through me maybe up to a dozen times a day. This annoyance was over things so seemingly minor, so out of my usual field of reference, that I was surprised by how I had to take a deep breath to dismantle this disgust and frustration that was all due to the foolishness of other people, adults, acquaintances, and strangers on social media who offered up their rash opinions and judgments, their mindless preoccupations, always with an unwavering certitude that they were right. A toxic attitude seemed to drift off every post or comment or tweet, whether it was actually there or not. This anger was new, something I'd never experienced before, and it was tied in with an anxiousness, an oppression I felt whenever I ventured online, a sense that I was going to somehow make a mistake instead of simply offering an opinion or make a joke or criticize someone or something. This idea would have been unthinkable 10 years earlier, that an opinion could become something wrong. But in an infuriated, polarized society, people were blocked because of these opinions and unfollowed because they were perceived in ways that might be inaccurate. The fearful began to instantly see the entire humanity of an individual in a cheeky, offensive tweet and were outraged. People were attacked and unfriended for backing the wrong candidate or having the wrong opinion or for simply stating the wrong belief. It was as if no one could differentiate between a living person and a string of words hastily typed out on a black sapphire screen. The culture at large seemed to encourage discourse, but social media had become a trap, and what it really wanted to do was shut down the individual. What often activated my stress was that other people were always angry about everything, presenting themselves as enraged by opinions that I believed in and liked or thought were simply innocuous. My pushback against all of this forced me to confront a degraded fantasy of myself, an actor, as someone I never thought existed. And this in turn became a constant reminder of my failings. And what was worse, this anger could become addictive to the point where I just gave up and sat there exhausted, mute with stress. But ultimately silence and submission were what the machine wanted. Thank you. Well, so there's so much in there. Do you think that this powerlessness and anger was has only come in since Trump has been elected? Or do you think that for Trump voters, they were feeling this in the Obama years and we just didn't hear about it? I guess so. I mean, I do think it's tied to social media in general. And I think it happened way before Trump. I think it happened really with the advent of Twitter, if you want to know the truth. I really think this uh, this platform that gave everyone a voice, everyone a chance to uh, uh, exhibit themselves, display themselves, gave them... I guess a kind of opportunity to uh, behave with a certainty that they were kind of right, that their opinions were being heard, that they were valid. 
and it empowered them and it empowered it's kind of an empowering thing at first and i think that it was it it was social media that started this and i think this happened way before Trump or really maybe beginning with the first term of the Obama administration. I think it probably took off somewhere during that time because I remember having um, getting nervous and wary about social media sometime during the Obama era. And then it just kind of exploded in the last few years. Uh, and it, I think it just happened to coincide with Trump. I don't see Trump and this problem that I'm talking about uh, as being as two things that were forged at the same time. In the book and several of the essays, you kind of hark back to your childhood and then um, talk about your experience with actors as you became a filmmaker and a writer as well. And you mentioned that this this fraught period has made you feel like an actor, whereas you've never felt like that before. I think we all are actors. I think we're I all. Too. I think we're all acting. I mean, that's one of the reasons why that section uh, of the book called "Acting" was included, and I felt was important because it really did seem to be something that we were all falling into. We were all becoming actors on social media, and not only on Twitter, but also on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. We were displaying ourselves in ways that weren't exactly truthful. We were kind of showing off our best assets, the most glamorous versions of ourselves. Certainly, we were trying to put out the best-looking versions of ourselves, and there were often apps to help us look even better than we actually did. And I do think it started with Facebook. I think Facebook made us, uh, encouraged us to be show us a better side of ourselves, a kind of fake side of ourselves, a positive, upbeat side of ourselves, an optimistic side of ourselves. And it reminded me a lot of what actors have to do all the time because I knew so many actors. And really, the, the section in the book uh, details um, growing up in L.A., knowing a lot of actors, and then talking about the actors that I'm actually friendly with and how different they are in private compared to how they are publicly. And I think that's basically true for so much of social media now, that you really don't get the real person. You get a kind of, as I write here, a kind of degraded fantasy that this person is pushing through. And often it's true. You, you, you see people on Twitter, for example, and you think, Jesus, what an asshole. What a creep. And then you realize, no, that's what Twitter does. It doesn't really show off who you really are. It shows off this fantasy you have of yourself as an actor. And so I think um, this is a theme that is constantly touched upon in the book where it just seems like this world is a stage right now and everyone is acting and spouting their own lines and creating their own bubble where they're play acting in a world and people are bouncing off each other. No one's following the same script. And it's, um, it's very suggestive. You also talk about the blandness that comes with that because as we're all creating our own narratives of our lives as everyday people. And like, I've done it too on social media, yes. That, I mean, I don't think you do it because you do speak your mind, even though I'm sure there's still an element of knowing it's public. But this this niceness, this this kind of um, all the colour being squished into this one range in terms of people towing the line because they don't want to offend anymore. Yes. It feels like... Hard for people like me. But thank build God. build their career on that. But don't you think in novels we accept the complexity of... the complexities of people? Like, people can be both good, bad, in between, whereas now, publicly, we find it very hard to accept a whole... Person. Oh, don't you think that's bleeding over into everything? What about that young woman who wrote the YA novel that she suddenly pulled from publication because there was some online, uh, there was a kind of a mob attack that uh, she shouldn't have been writing about a Muslim girl? I don't know oh, what it was exactly, right. but she pulled the book and she apologized to everyone. And I don't think people had even read the book yet. Um, uh, thought crime. It's called thought crime. And that was not something that was around even 10 years ago. That's something that's very new. That something um, 
that even thinking something or wanting to, I don't know, even something like Scarlett Johansson wanting to play a part where she wanted to play a, uh, a transgender person and then the mob goes after her because she's not exactly that thing. That really has started to come into play. There was an HBO show that I think D- David Benioff, who created Game of Thrones, wanted to do about, um, uh, about the black experience or about what if I think slavery never existed or something along that line. And it was just mentioned and then the mob went after that. So I think this notion of, um, that's getting a little bit away from it, but I think um, this notion of niceness and presenting your most virtuous self forward is also beginning to affect the arts to one degree or another. And that that's something, and I think people are looking at art in an ideological way. I don't think they're just looking at Black Panther as a Marvel movie. They're looking at it as a grand statement about the African experience and the black experience in the world. And they're looking at Roma as a portrait of an indigenous woman's um, unfair treatment in terms of upper middle class family life in Mexico and made by a white man or whatever. Things seem to be um, um, being distorted in that way. And I do think it started out from this idea of presenting your best self, presenting this this kind of avatar of virtuousness and, uh, you know, uh, opinion that leans towards groupthink uh, because you want to be popular and you don't want to be left out of the group has really begun affecting everything, not just who you are on social media, but it seems uh, who you are outside of social media and the arts themselves. There's an amazing line in your book where you talk about how writing for you was never about an audience in mind. It was in, in essence to kind of be a salve for your own pain. Yes. With that impulse, how did that first book come out of you? Well, because I was an alienated kid, I was very solitary in high school. I can't say I was lonely in any way, um, but I did feel a distance from the world, I think, because I was gay. And I do think that makes you have to step aside outside of the crowd, and you get to see things more clearly than my peers did, uh, who didn't have that, what I look now at as an advantage. And I looked at it as an advantage then. Uh, I was like a secret agent in a way, watching everyone uh, over on the sidelines, even though I was a participant. I wasn't like that alienated geek. I mean, I had a girlfriend in high school. I went to the parties. I helped decorate the floats, whatever was required of me. Um, But I was different. And I might have known one or two other secret agents, but uh, we all acted, um, you know, uh, on the down low. And it wasn't something that was out. And you did feel like you were kind of undercover in a way. That, in turn, uh, led me to uh, intense bursts of feeling about writing about this life I was living, this covert life in a way. And I do see a lot of those, a lot of the early work that's not been published, but especially in Lesson Zero, the narrator acting as a camera in a way, recording what's going on and not really talking about his own feelings. If he is talking about his own feelings, it's in the prose and it's what he's decided to look at. And you realize that's where the feeling is. That's where the emotion is. It's not being stated, but it's being uh, cameras recording this. And I often felt that way. And I do think that that is what made me want to become an artist. And I knew about this at a very early age. And so I was always drawing uh, children's books and then comic books and then with Lesson Zero, I realized, and I, I had written a novel before Lesson Zero. I'd written a novel about uh, uh, the summer of, I believe it was 1978. I was working at, uh, my grandfather owned a hotel up in Elko, Nevada, which is about three and a half hours outside of Salt Lake City. Um, and I wrote a novel about my experiences there, a full-fledged novel, uh, fictionalized, of course, but that was 
that gave me a taste of what I wanted to do on an even bigger scale. And so that's really how Lesson Zero began. Lesson Zero began with a lot of journal entries, a lot of nonfiction. I'd come home, I'd write about what I saw at a party that night, a club I went to, uh, going to the mall, uh, what my friends were doing. Uh, And I guess looking back, I mean, we were very, very independent. Parents really weren't around at all. I had friends who were 17 living alone in apartments because their family lived in Malibu and it was just easier for them to get to school, whether it was Beverly Hills High or they had to live in the school district or whatever. And I just remember a world where adults really weren't around. I mean, I remember a lot of high school parties with alcohol in in big houses where I didn't see an adult. So all of this, um, that lack of parental attention also helped me write that book uh, and aided in uh, kind of the completion of it. But I think that's why that book came around. And yes, certainly I was in a kind of pain. Uh, I'm always in a kind of pain. It never really, it's the pain of living. (laughs) It's the pain of just dealing with everyday life. Um, But uh, so Lesson Zero um, certainly was the beginning of that. I think what comes across in your book as well is that in contrast to the, say, the millennial generation now, your childhood informed the way you look at the world in that pain is a part of life. Correct. And you get on with it. Yeah. You, you deal with it and get on with it. And I related to that because sometimes I have friends and in my head I'm thinking, I self-soothed like a kid. You know, I worked out... I should go read or, you know, do whatever. But for you and your childhood, I'd love you to talk about being a six or seven-year-old and seeing these horror films and what they taught you about the world. We have to say there's it's kind of apt sound effects <laughs> with the sirens as we look over the kind of incredible view of L.A. Um, well, look, I think it... I think it is a generational thing. Talked to a lot of people my age who uh, agreed with my description, uh, not a particularly lengthy description about what it was like to be a child of the 70s and where parents really weren't around. Uh, They weren't there to protect you. They weren't there to soothe you. They weren't there to take care of every pain and ache and problem you had. You kind of had to solve it on your own. And it did make us self-sufficient to a degree. And it did make some of the bitter realities of life easier to take when they finally, you know, struck you full force in the face. Um, So I'm kind of grateful for that. I can't say exactly that my parents weren't there. Obviously, they were. I mean, we had a house. We were fed. We were educated. So they were there. But they weren't there holding your hand all the time. And they weren't that interested in you in terms of how I think later generations of parents are kind of obsessed with their children. And, you know, and certainly social media helps them become more obsessed because they treat them as kind of status objects. And I can't tell you how many parents I know pose their babies on Instagram and, uh, you know, the, the whole thing. But we didn't have that. And it was also a time where we were expected to grapple with disappointment and realize that the world doesn't work out that way, that it's never going to be a utopia. It's never going to be perfect. There's going to be a lot of problems that we have to deal with, and we have to deal with them on our own. Um, And so that was something that I think led me towards liking horror movies a lot when I was a kid and a teenager. Though I can't say I'm completely alone on that. But there was something about the out-of-control aspect of horror pictures where these terrible things would happen, and no one really knew why, because that was part of the horror that I related to. And they made me stronger, I think, in a way. Uh, I certainly could relate to them on a certain level uh, because they kind of reflected the chaos in my family. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. My parents were going through a divorce. I mean, small stuff, really, in the overall arching theme of people from my generation. Divorce, parent had a drug habit, you know, an alcohol drug habit. But um, it helped me deal with the disappointments in life. 
these movies did and help me get through my adolescence in a way that I don't know, maybe it would have been a little harder if those weren't my friends to a degree. And that's, it wasn't only horror movies, it was actually fiction itself. It was books, it was certain writers who helped me escape from the uh, the pain of daily life, of, of being gay, of having a family that was fragmenting. And so all of those things, again, aided in, I guess, a kind of education and a kind of way of being self-sufficient and independent. And when Less Than Zero became the sensation, obviously it sounds like, I mean, no one writes a, a book. Right. A first, I mean, even if you'd written um, the other novel that hadn't got published, right. no one at 23 really writes a book and thinks this could happen. 21. 21. It was published when I was 21, That's yes. right. I'm not patting myself on the back. No, I was I was as shocked as anybody, okay? But then you become part of this brat pack, mm-hmm. literary brat pack in New York. Yes. And, you know, in the book you talk about how sometimes, you know, you're in the celeb pages, mm-hmm. but sometimes you can't even remember if you were at the place where they right. say you were at and sometimes you weren't. Yeah. And almost this splitting of, of course. reality and and fiction, how at that point were you just, were you enjoying this lifestyle or were you hyper aware of how bizarre it was? Oh, well, God, you know, I, do you remember? I, well, do I remember? <laughs> I mean, I, I have a hard time remembering some of this stuff and I say so in the book, but um, look, looking back, of course, some of it had to be fun. Some of it had to be, if not fun, at least interesting. Yes. It was interesting. Now, I feel that I was unhappier than I should have been, that I should have really uh, embraced my good fortune, and I didn't. I was very depressed during those years. And those were also the years that I was writing American Psycho. So during this kind of uh, whirling swirling moment for me when I came to New York and I was a young writer and I was well known, uh, I really regret that I didn't bask in it a lot more. I do regret that. And I remember a teacher telling me who had had a bestseller when he was very young, a nonfiction uh, bestseller, actually Joe McGinnis, who Lesson Zero is dedicated to and who was kind of my mentor. He told me when Lesson Zero started to take off, he said, believe me, enjoy this. It's not going to happen again. And I tried, I tried, um, but it was a, it was very confusing. I wasn't fully formed yet. I was 21 when the book uh, came out and became a bestseller, and it was just something I didn't trust. I didn't trust what was happening to me, and therefore I was kind of confused. I was kind of angry. I kind of didn't understand why this was happening to this book. Did I deserve it? Did I deserve it? And so all of this went into, I think, American Psycho. There was a lull there where I wrote my campus novel, The Rules of Attraction, where I was just kind of dealing with my student ennui and, you know, writing about all my friends. And it is in many ways quite a less serious book in some ways than Less Than Zero or American Psycho, but that's how I was feeling. And I was I wrote most of uh, Rules of Attraction before Less Than Zero was published. So I, I, I wonder if there would have been a very different vibe to that book if I'd written it after Less Than Zero. But really, American Psycho was the first book that I worked on after the success of Less Than Zero and experiencing what I did my first three years in New York, which was being this kind of mini celebrity. And it's very hard to remember uh, that there was a moment when novelists would walk the red carpet and, you know, pap- paparazzi would chase you, you know, down the street when you came out of a club and you would be in the gossip columns. I mean, it seems like such a long ago era and it actually is it's a long ago century. Um but that did inform American Psycho that I did see this split between the real me, the real Brett, who I knew and lived with for 24 hours a day, and then this kind of distorted thing, the bad boy of the Brat Pack, the dark prince of American letters. And I said, that's not me. I don't really know why they're saying this, but, oh, they're building a narrative. It's a story. It's easy to sell this, just as it's easier to sell the Brat Pack rather than us as individual writers. And, you know, I guess looking back, it was kind of a sexy story, like young writers being taken seriously by 
the world and, you know, elevate it to a certain level. But, um, but it was, I regret, uh, a time that I wished I had just taken a deep breath and said, let's have some fun and let's not have this be such, such a drama that you're turning it into. And, uh, but I didn't do that. And, you know, uh, I have to say that a lot of things helped me stay in that uh, in that mind frame. Lesson Zero wasn't a particularly well-reviewed book. I mean, half the reviews were terrible. I know people don't remember this, but I saw them all, um, and half of them were good. Uh, it was a bestseller briefly. It did sell a lot of copies for a first novel, but it wasn't it wasn't universally beloved at all. There was a lot of negative reviews uh, taking Simon and Schuster to task, saying, how could they publish this? Publishing has hit rock bottom. There, uh, 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 a publisher is publishing the diaries of a wasted teenage dr- druggie. Um, this is, you know, so anyway, so that kind of whatever big head I would have gotten, no, wasn't happening at all. And also with my own self-pity, and self dislike, it made the whole thing not as fun as it could have been. Maybe that distrust, though, was healthy. And some of the guys that influenced American Psycho in the book, you mentioned that they were, you had a friend at Bennington and you went out with him and his brothers and their friends. Yeah. And you, can you talk about what you were noticing? Because I thought it was so interesting to just hear from you this the kind of co-opting of gay culture in terms of male grooming and all these things that we now you know all these years later are just part of the kind of metrosexual experience well it really was starting then and it was something that uh i noticed right away when I moved to Manhattan. You have to understand that I've been in uh, a kind of weird hippie-ish college up in southwestern Vermont called Bennington with only about 600 kids. And so, of course, we were aware of what was happening outside of our little enclave, but um, going to Manhattan and actually meeting uh, young guys in business, in the arts, um, was kind of a surprise. I mean, these they did seem to me just looking at them like many of the gay men that I knew in the late 70s and into the early 80s. Um, and it, I realized that they had co-opted what was universally known as gay culture, that there was this huge boom in men working out and getting their bodies a certain way. There was an obsession with tanning and grooming and haircuts and this this male dandy that suddenly appeared. And I realized that that was going to be Patrick Bateman, that he was going to internalize and externalize all of the stuff that was happening in the culture. And I do think it went back to uh, a certain kind of advertising that uh, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, photographers like Bruce Weber, Herb Ritz were bringing in by sexualizing men in a way that had been done only really in like gay pinup porn and stuff like that. And that they helped ease the way into that. I, I certainly think American Gigolo uh, was, even though it was in a massive hit, I think it was a widespread cultural um, uh, notification to men that you can look like this, you can dress like this, you will be the American Gigolo, you'll be very sexy. And um, and I and I do think the emergence of Gentleman's Quarterly as a big magazine now uh, with men starting to buy it all of that aided in this creation of this uh, mid-decade. I mean, in the 80s, it really began uh, to become prevalent in the mid-80s of this uh, male dandy. And I did think it was kind of ironic to a degree that it had been uh, a straight culture was co-opting gay culture. I'm all for working out, but at what price? That's really what Patrick Bateman is. At what price? When are you not happy? When are you just doing it to have this exterior or this shell uh, because society tells you to? 
And that's what was gnawing at me when I was working on American Psycho. Oh, in order to be a successful man or to get the chick or to get the dude or whatever, you have to have a million dollars, six-pack abs, be super fit, have a great condo, um, whatever. All of these, uh, these trappings that were supposed to elevate your status and make you happier, well, just weren't. And I felt that way myself. I mean, I was a successful young writer. I was living in Manhattan. I was aspiring to all of these things. And I was trying to because I was told that this would make me happy. And that if I followed these rules, um, I too would find inner peace. And, you know, and I think that's what American Psycho became because Patrick Bateman is chasing this kind of fraudulent American dream. And it's making him miserable. And I can say that I felt somewhat the same way while I was writing that book. And then that book became a reflection of my own dissatisfaction and my own disillusionment with the Reagan 80s and yuppie culture and my own kind of, um, you know, my own private thoughts on fame and being well-known and uh, being kind of one of those guys in the book, you know, going out to clubs, going out to restaurants and really finding it all to be <laughs> kind of empty. But at the same time, that's my fault. It should have been fun. It just wasn't for me. And I think that gets folded back into the novel. Well, it's almost what you were saying before about when you're an observer and there's there's a distance between you and the experience. You know, sometimes when you're in the moment with friends, like you're fully there. Yeah. And then other times you're in experiences where you're, I've been like this. I'm like, why can't I be here? I don't know how to enter this. The problem was that I was famous. Within a certain world, I can't say I was world famous or anything, but in Manhattan, I was famous. That definitely puts you at a distance from everyone. And I was very careful. I was very careful. I was at a distance and I knew a lot of people hated me. I knew a lot of friends. I sensed it. It wasn't confirmed till later, but I had a lot of friends who were writers and they admitted much later that they were absolutely horrified by their jealousy and their dislike of me. Not that I was a bad guy, but I won this lottery ticket in a way, though I never saw it that way because I was the only one really writing the novel. I worked for four and a half years on Less Than Zero. No one else was doing that. So I, you know... I always thought that that, when I finally found that out, I thought that was, well, you know, I guess that's just youthful, you know, uh, youthful jealousy or whatever. But so I was at this remove, um, and that certainly doesn't make you happy. Uh, you can't really enjoy the experience if you're consciously, uh, if you're constantly self-conscious all the time. And I felt very, very self-conscious during those years those early years in New York. Um, and yet, you know, I say all this and I'm talking about it, but there must have been fun times. You know, there must have been something about it that was fun. And then again, as I said earlier, I now second guess myself. So, no, I think it was interesting. I don't know if it was fun. Looking back though, I, it was fun. Looking back from my memories now as an older, older man, yes, I look back and think, Jesus, that was a really fun time. And it's just too bad that you are enjoying it now. Well, at least you're enjoying it yeah. at some point and it yeah, no, takes so you're us right. back. You're right. And, and I don't want to harp on, like, I'm so sick of talking about Trump, but he, it is quite strange or apt <laughs> that you did base Patrick yes. Bateman on him. Uh, to a degree. I mean, Trump became a figure in the novel American Psycho, because he was a figure in New York life at that time. And there were many, many guys on Wall, Street's, on Wall Street who found him an aspirational figure. The, the Art of the Deal had come out. was a massive bestseller. Everyone was reading it. I read it. And, um, and he was this uh, 80s icon for a lot of people. And it bothered me then. And Trump kind of bothered me then. And it seemed fitting that Patrick Bateman would be obsessed with him. And it seemed fitting that it w Trump would <laughs> enter into his dream life 
uh, as well as his reality, and that he would compare, he would he would um, do anything Trump said. He would try a pizza that Trump gave a thumbs up to in the New York Post. Uh, he was always spotting Trump. He would like to walk up to uh, you know uh, Fifth Avenue and stare at the Trump Tower that had been, I guess, newly erected sometime at that point, uh, a little bit before American Psycho, and so. I just thought it was part of the wallpaper of the moment. And I didn't really think twice about it. And it really wasn't until Trump's ascendancy lately that people have really thought that the book it was in some way prescient. And I didn't think that at all. I mean, I thought it was just in that moment, just like a lot of the bands, a lot of the music I talk about, um, a lot of the designers uh, of that of the three years that I was working on American Psycho fell into the book as well. I never thought that was the point. I thought it was all decoration. And the decoration was the point, but the specific decoration certainly wasn't. And I didn't think that putting Trump in there, I don't know how many times, 30 or 40 times within the text, was it was anything odd or strange. And I can't take any credit for that because he was just ubiquitous back then, as he is now. Yeah. So I have to say, I had Catelyn Moran on the podcast, who's a British writer. And in her book, she talks about, you know, red flags, like when guys have red flags or if someone you're dating has a red flag. And we were chatting about it and I said, oh, well, I think mine would be if on a Tinder or dating app, the guy's favourite book is American Psycho and it's on there, which I have seen. Yeah. And I thought I just had to tell you that because you think in it's fine if it's someone's favorite book, like that's mm-hmm. great. But to put it on a as your one thing, as a when you're trying to attract someone, yes. But <laughs> I have to say, the audience for that book is pretty much evenly split. A lot of women love that book, and it started early on with Faye Weldon talking about how much she loved it. And then two feminists made the movie, Mary Heron, who loved the book as well. And so did Guinevere Turner. And so did many. It ended up being a book that I would say just as many women like as men do. And it really does take you into this whole controversy that's happened lately about these Ted Bundy movies that are coming Mm -hmm. out, the Ted Bundy documentary, and why women were so drawn to Ted Bundy and why women are so drawn to certain male serial killers and why what is it about that? Uh, the younger generation is kind of horrified and said it's anti-feminist. It's not really in play with what one's belief should be. I mean, you, why would you be so drawn to a serial killer? I think why not? I mean, I don't know. There's something about their lawlessness, their their complete disregard for the propriety of life that might be exciting to some people. I don't know. The the when Ted Bundy was alive and around and he was in court, I mean, women's fan letters and people talking about how attractive he was and uh, and it still happens. I mean, prisoners, I mean, I remember Richard Ramirez, who was the night stalker, I think, in L.A. in the mid-'80s, kind of a tall, weirdly handsome uh, Hispanic guy, um, had thousands of marriage proposals thrown at him. Lyle and Eric Medendis meant their wives while they were in prison. So we can't fit everything into a neat narrative. People are strange. People are contradictions. And, you know, you would think, I, I wonder if some of those men who put American Psycho as their favorite book on a dating site maybe know something that the rest of us don't know. Um, because on social media, I, I see a lot of women, more, more, maybe more than men, who like that book and like put in their top five and tweet about it and stuff. So it's, it's strange. And how do you think, I don't want to give it away for people who haven't read the book, but... Um, we are in this moment of... There's nothing to give away. Oh. You can Nothing oh, to give okay. away. Please, yeah, please but, talk about it. No, but you talk very much like to the heart of this moment we're in, um, whether it's, uh, you know, Me Too moment or everyone exactly wanting to have their say and what it's doing to us as a culture when we don't take responsibility for our own lives. You know, we're destroying ourselves. We're destroying ourselves. We're destroying society. <laughs> What's really happening? Uh, it's so divisive. 
Um, and it, it and it comes down to not taking responsibility, not facing up to the reality of the situation. I talk about something called the sentimental narrative mm-hmm. uh, that Joan Didion coined. And the sentimental narrative is a kind of a re- retreating into uh, a childhood need for pleasantness and a kind of utopia that makes you feel good even though it's not the reality of the situation and will never be the reality of the situation. Um, And I think that is happening everywhere right now. And I do think that it is the main source of unhappiness and tension and stress in this country. And it also, it's not about, you know, it's not about sexism or gender or racism. It's really about a kind of childlike Puritanism that seems to be flowing everywhere right now, uh, and a kind of genderless Puritanism that people are embracing, that everyone is the same, men and women are exactly the same, their needs are the same, their wants are the same, their bodies are the same, they can do the same thing, they're completely interested in the same thing. Well, I don't know if that's fully true. I mean, I do think there are differences between men and women, and one is not better or one is not worse than the other. It's just kind of this biological fact. And even saying that is considered controversial right now. And you can either stay sane and stick to it or drive yourself crazy and become a pod person and just go along with the the group think of the moment. We never know how long it lasts. You never know where it's going to go. But but I do think that there is on some days a healthy pushback to this childlike feelings of being victimized and like I didn't get my lollipop and I think the world can be a big purple playground with everything, everyone's equal and everyone's fine and and the world will be a happy place. And it's just like, I hear this sometimes and I think, are you fucking crazy? The reality is often kind of harsh, bitter. Uh, You take responsibility for stuff, you move on. I I don't know, but it's, uh, but I do think that is, um, that is uh, not taking responsibility and not being able to see the world without bias is really what the book ended up being about. And that, therefore, there is this title, White, and the word white is fading into the top of the book cover, uh, and it's just projecting, you know, like if you're meditating, uh, to just take a deep breath and then... Uh, and then see both sides of things. Always look at both sides. Always put your shoes in someone else's. Uh, always put your feet in someone else's <laughs> shoes. And um, and then uh, you know it sounds so Southern California, but just chill out. I know this book isn't a novel, and you've said they're not really essays either. But early on in the book, you talk about how you had been struggling with the form of the novel, struggling with even wanting to write it, and you'd called it the fake enclave of the novel. I'm just wondering to end on, do you still feel like that form is is over? Well, it's certainly not over for me as a reader. I love novels. I have two going at all times. Um, I have a stack of 30 on my nightstand that I am hoping to get to soon. I love novels and I love reading novels and novels can thrill me. A lot of the times they disappoint me, but when I'm in the grip of a novel, uh, it is as pleasurable as the best movie uh, or the a, a great TV series. Um, so it's an important thing to me. I think I just fell out of uh, the desire to write the novel anymore. And I really was concentrating on film and then television in terms of expressing myself somehow. And the novel fell to the wayside. I also felt I wrote enough novels. I wrote like six novels. Um, So I felt I'd explored everything that I wanted to explore in novels. I didn't even think I would be writing Imperial Bedrooms. I thought Lunar Park was as far as I could go with the novel. And then L.A. happened. The Informers happened. And I wrote out of the pain of that whole disastrous experience of my midlife crisis and the Informers turning into a disaster. You know, uh, I wrote that book. It was therapy for me. It was therapy for me. And though I didn't like that book when it was published, I really like it now. And it's the only book of mine that I can read without cringing. 
I can't look at any of the other books now. I I now am in love with Imperial Bedrooms, and I just love the way it's written, and I love how stark it is, and I love its kind of screenplay-like quality, and this weird narrator who's so creepy, but sad. I, anyway, I'm getting off topic, but um, but but something happened while I was putting White together because. I did approach it not as a collection of essays, but as a literary experience. It was creative. Uh, and I really hadn't done this kind of long form uh, writing in a long time. It's about 272 pages of prose, and it needed to be uh, structured, it needed to be rewritten at times. We needed to figure out when it was going to stop, when it was going to start again, uh, what what had I written before that was going to either stay in or be or be taken out? And it did activate something. I started to think about the novel again. Last questions. Yeah. What's the last great novel you read and loved? Okay. The last great novel I read and loved was The House of Mirth uh, by Edith Wharton, which I had tried to read in college. And as a 20 or 21-year-old college student male, I simply didn't get. I couldn't get through it. It was too dense. Uh, I wasn't interested in the central situation. I was really in love with minimalism at that point. So I I don't know. Um, And for some reason, that copy that I've had since college, I've carried around with me, has always been in every bookshelf that I've had. And when I moved all my books from New York here, it was there, just sitting there. And I was cleaning out my bookshelves and I said, oh, I really got to give this one a shot. Okay, so I put it off to the side. And then earlier this year, I um, earlier, actually last year, it was in 2018, I picked it up and opened it up. And it was one of those enthralling reading experiences where it's just, you see the world in a different way. And it really, it, movies can't do this. Nothing else can do this. Where you're Because the novel is about consciousness. You're, it's about consciousness. Uh, you're in another person's head, and you're 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 working in tandem with them, figuring out this world and Lily Bart, and it was uh, my my major artistic moment of 2018 was reading uh, the House of Mirth, and then there were some good uh, contemporary novels uh, that I read. I liked um, Rachel Kushner's last last book, The Mars Room, and I liked Tessa Moshfig, and I liked uh, Emma Klein's book, but nothing compared to whatever Edith Wharton is doing with uh, The Age, uh, I mean, The um, House of Mirth. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you. What did I get out of this podcast? So much. And I have to recall talking to Catelyn Moran in her garden and I had said to her that I always found it to be a red flag if someone had a copy of American Psycho on their bedstand. And now having spent time with Brett, I feel like I need to take that back. So it might not be quite a red flag because he was so wonderful and now I understand his impulses behind writing the book. A lot more has become clear so I'm going to give all those future dates, all those future guys a chance. If there are any books that are a red flag for you, please let me know and I will try to track down those authors to try and interrogate them too. Let me know at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.